Okay. Thank you again, Jeff, for leading this morning in song and worship. Um, so we are in John 8 this morning, verses 12 to 20. And uh, as we begin this morning, the providence of the Lord is not lost upon me whatsoever. Um, last week we preached, well, we, uh, we did a talk on John 8, or well, John 7, 53 to 8, 11, right? And we had a uh, kind of an excursus there about why we were handling that text in such a manner. But the week before that, we were at the conclusion of John chapter 7. And I don't remember the exact wording of the point that I was making, but it had something to do with the providence of God and his sovereign hand over all things, right? As we think about what happens at the end of John chapter 7, uh, the Pharisees are seeking the arrest of Jesus as the festival of booths is happening. He's preaching and teaching in the temple, and they want him arrested. There is conflict and tension beginning to arise as Jesus makes all of these bold claims about himself and who he is and what he is doing that these Pharisees, whose faith has, their, their eyes are blinded, quite literally, if we talk through Isaiah, which we will, their eyes are blinded and they send these authorities, these temple officers to arrest him and they don't. They, they don't. They just simply refuse. Like they say, no one has ever spoken like this guy. We're not, I'm not arresting him. And then Nicodemus steps in. He's a Pharisee too. He's one of them. And he questions them, pushes back against the Pharisees saying, whoa, we have our own laws here that we need to follow and we're not doing that. But in that, we see the providence of God. Yes, Jesus would be handed over. Yes, Jesus would be arrested. And yes, Jesus would be crucified. But it was not at that day. It was not at that time that that was to happen. And we see the providence of God in that. And as you look at your life, you think and reflect on the lives, the days that you've lived, the years you've lived, you see the providence of God in your life. You see the hand of the Lord working. And I, can, I have to say that this weekend, it is not lost on me, the providence of the Lord. Our verse today, so I was going to preach 12 to 20. And as I got to about Wednesday, I realized there is no way I'm getting 13 to 20 done. So it became just 12, John 8, 12. Okay, that's, that was the text. I, just as prep was happening, as notes were going, I was like, there's no way 13 to 20 is going to happen. It's just going to be 12. Okay. And I also decided, typically, some of you may know this, I handwrite all my notes for sermon uh, prep, for preaching. I write them on little notebook-sized papers. This week, I decided to type them. I don't know why. I just decided to type them on a computer and, and you know, print them off on Saturday at work. I was going to do that. And you know what happened. The storms come in, the 80 mile per hour winds tear up the soccer facility, tear up my backyard. There's no power there. There's no power at home. There's, I, I don't know how to use the printer here without Monica being here to help me. So uh, I did get my notes done. But it's just the providence of the Lord. And then as we turn our attention to the text this morning, it becomes even more providential looking at the text for today. So, that was not my planned opening. My planned opening was regarding the way light is used in all different pieces of art. Think of the themes of light. I love country music. Love country music. George Jones, my favorite artist ever. Favorite country singer. But Hank Williams, 1947, he wrote the song... I saw the light. I saw the light. David Crowder did a version of it back when I was in college. Right? Praise the Lord. I saw the light. No more sorrow. Uh, praise the Lord. I saw the light. He wasn't a believer as far as we know. He died at the age of 29. Had loads of addictions. But these themes of light. His recognition of seeing the light... Equating that to the gospel, equating that to Jesus, equating that to the Lord, the light is a good thing. 
And he is praising the Lord that he saw the light, at least in the song. Think of the themes of light in literature. Again, pulling from my favorites, J.R.R. Tolkien, and the themes of light in The Lord of the Rings. Whether it's the movies and the, the adaptations on film or in the text, as you think of Gandalf the White. He was once Gandalf the Grey, but he died, rose again, and then became Gandalf the White. And in his, the white robes that he wore, he glowed. A light came from him. You think of the depictions in the film adaptations as you think of the good scenes as Gandalf comes in at Helm's Deep to save the day. He's surrounded by light. As you think of Minas Tirith in the third book, it's covered in light. And as the battles are happening, as the wars are happening, there's this incredible depiction of light and dark. And the differentiation between the light and the dark. And what happens in the dark versus what happens in the light. And here we are. Three days into this weekend, no light, no power, no electricity. It's 30 degrees, it's cold outside, it's 55 in my home. And our verse, let's get here. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What magnificent words from our Savior. Let's pray and then we will continue. Father, Thank you, Lord, for giving us this light of life through your Son. And Lord, this morning, may your word feed our hearts and souls and minds and bodies. May you strengthen our drooping hands and our weak knees by your word. Because of your Son, through your Spirit. Lord, we pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. Okay, so, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So I already went through what we did last week, but just as a reminder of where we are and how we got here, this is the festival of booths that is happening. The festival of or Feast of Ingathering, if you want to use the, the Exodus terminology. But the Festival of Booths from Deuteronomy 16. It is September, October-ish on the calendar, on our calendar. And again, this is commemorating the wilderness wandering. The 40 years that the people of Israel spent wandering, living in tents or booths in the desert. That's what this is commemorating. It's also a time of, of celebration and gladness as they bring in the harvest. It's a... It's a Harvest festival, if you will. And at the beginning of this, Jesus is having a conversation again with his blood brothers, his, his Mary's born sons, and they're telling Jesus, if you are who you say you are, go. No one does these works in private and hides themselves. If you are really Jesus, or if you are really the Christ or the Messiah, if you are who you claim to be, you have to go. You have to go do these things in public. And Jesus says, no, now is not my time. I will not go now. He goes later, right? They, they would go to these festivals and kind of like teenagers today. They would go in big caravans and groups of friends traveling to these festivals. But Jesus went up privately, it tells us. He didn't go up in a big caravan of people. He went up privately to this temple he, or to the festival in Jerusalem. And he hears all the, the talking and the chattering and the murmuring. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. He's just walked on water. He's just done all of these, these miracles. And they're chattering. People are, hey, did you see what Jesus did? Hey, did you, do you know what Jesus has done? Did you blah, 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 blah about Jesus? And he hears them and he's walking through the crowds and he goes to the temple and he begins to teach. And he begins to teach and we go through seven uh, and all of seven is him having a dialogue or, or a monologue depending on if he's talking to someone or just teaching. But he's 
teaching with wisdom and authority. He's claiming his perfect obedience to the Father. He's claiming that from himself will come rivers of living water that they can partake in. And because of these claims, these claims that he has come from the Father, that he has come from God, because he claiming that he is the one who offers this new life that comes from this river of water that is living, what happens? Division. Division happens. Some follow Christ. Some of the people in the crowd say, oh, this is the prophet. Or, oh, this is the Messiah, right? Referring to the prophet, the capital P prophet that was promised to Moses to follow him in Moses' likeness, knowing that that is Jesus. You see, the people, the crowds are starting to recognize from their Bibles, the Hebrew scriptures, these promises of the Messiah and the prophet, and they're connecting the dots. This is, this is him. Then there are some who are saying this guy is a madman and he is a liar and he is doing nothing but leading people astray. Right? Think of C.S. Lewis's uh, lunatic liar lord dilemma. And as this dissension and division stirs, the Pharisees start to become more and more hard-pressed to fix the issue, right? The, the glory is no longer happening to be upon them. The glory is transferring to another, and they need to fix that. They need to cover themselves, and so here they are now. We need to arrest him, and this is really where the rubber starts to meet the road. The tensions really start to, to come into play here between Jesus and the religious authorities, and a lot of that has to do with his work on the Sabbath and Jesus healing the man at the pool. But it really starts to rub. The tension really starts to happen. So much so that, like I said a few minutes ago, they send the temple police to arrest him. But in God's providence, that doesn't happen. And so we get to this point, right? We get to this point where he is preaching and teaching, and now he stands and he says, he spoke to them saying what? I am the light of the world. He just said, a few, few chapters ago, he said what? I am the bread of life. Come and partake. People heard that. They said, eat, eat of me. We're going to take the Lord's Supper later today. Come and partake. Eat of me. And people are like, some of them are like, oh, that's gross. And I'm leaving. And I'm not following you. And we have that beautiful pronouncement from Peter. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And then he feeds all these people. And he walks on the water. And then he says that he is from the Father, that the Father has sent him, and that he is perfectly obedient to the Father. And that Moses points to him. And then later in chapter 8, he's going to say, Abraham points to him. You see, he's taking all of these Old Testament references and saying, they're pointing to me. He's making these claims. He says, I am the one who gives the, I, the river of life. Come to me and you may live and you will never thirst. Now we have, he is the light of the world. The claims that he is making. So, my sermon summary today is my only point. As I said, I was going to do 12 to 20. So, my sermon summary today is the only point for the sermon today. And it is this. Darkness and shadow surround us and fill us. Darkness and shadow surround us and fill us. Think of those scenes of of darkness and evil depicted in film and TV. That is what is happening around us. That is what is happening within us in our sin-filled hearts apart from Christ. Darkness and shadow surround us and fill us. But, like a lantern in dark places, Christ gives light and life to its possessor. Darkness and shadow surround us and fill us. Like a lantern in dark places, Christ gives light and life to its possessor. So we look at our text today. So Jesus spoke. 
Again, he's teaching with his authority, authority that nobody else possesses. Even the most learned of scholars in the temples do not possess the knowledge that this man possesses. Why? Because those most learned of scholars did not come from community with the triune God in eternity past. But he did. He broke in in the incarnation. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to get here in Isaiah 9 shortly. But he breaks in with as, as a baby, but still as God, the God-man. He breaks in and teaches, and he says, I am, don't let those two words slip by you, I am the light of the world. Now this is the second I am statement of the book of John. There are seven of these I am statements that he makes. The seven of them are metaphorical. I am something as to depict what he is. Two of them, so there's nine total. Two of those I am statements are direct references to God's name. Referring to himself as God. Nine I am statements. This is the second one. The first one we saw in John 6.35. I referenced it a minute ago. I am the bread of life. Right? This is where all the people start to leave because they think he's literally talking about eating him. I am the bread of life. Come and partake as we will do in the Lord's Supper. Then we have this one. I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. And here these references to God's name are in John 8, 58. We'll get there in a few weeks. John 18, 4 to 5, specifically saying, I am. Last night, we do our Saturday devotionals. We do our family devotionals on, on Saturday. And last night, it was, again, this is a, a, God's providence in completion. I mean, it's shocking, actually. We were reading Exodus chapter 3 as a family. If you'd like to turn there. If not, I can read it for you. I will read it for you. Exodus 3, here's what we have happening in verses 1 to 15. Again, Moses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. We know this story. Fire, a bush, light, life. The life in the bush is still alive. It's not burning up and consuming. Light and life. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, wouldn't we all? Why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, the God, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What was Moses' response? I, I was stuck, struck out by this last night when we were reading it with the kids. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. There was yet no mediator between God and man that would have preserved his life. And so he turns away out of his sinfulness and he is afraid to look. But then, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry. He knows, he sees, he hears because of their taskmasters. They're enslaved and I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. 
And I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses said, this is where I'm getting, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve the God of this mountain. Or the God on this mountain. Then Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And here, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. This is a comfort for us. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered through all generations. And so here we have the second person of the trinity the god man breaking in who has already broken in as he's standing here as an adult preaching and teaching claiming saying i am the light of life you see as this task was given to Moses to go, God was working, and what was God doing there? He was redeeming a people out of oppression and slavery. There was blood that had to be splattered and put above the families of those who are within the people of Israel, within the covenant of God, his chosen people, and it is Through this blood on the door that people left this oppression and entered into freedom. Now you see, that is exactly what Jesus is doing. As he enters into incarnate, or as he becomes incarnate, enters into creation, he has come to redeem his people from a bondage a slavery to sin and death, and he is going to do so by the splattering of blood over his people. These seven I am statements and these two more referring directly to God's name cannot just slip by us. Because I am who I am, the second person of the Trinity has come in to do just those things. Redeem out of darkness why because he's gracious he has heard the cries of his people he knows right what do we read about in hebrews jesus is his understanding of the suffering of his people he knows he sees he hears and he responds in his graciousness and mercy the seven i am statements we have these shadows of the exodus these shadows provided by Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and these shadows, Moses, that they do what? They point to the crystallized, true revelation of God's son in redemption of his people. You see, Jesus is standing in this temple and he is now, he's really pushing people's buttons. These I am statements would not be lost on the Pharisees. As the crowds started to connect him to the prophet of Moses, he's now saying, I am, twice. And he's going to say it two more times while he's in the temple, and again later. You see, this isn't just some analogy, and that's why I didn't like using the seven metaphorical statements, because they are metaphors, but they're not just metaphorical. You see, because... He is pronouncing of himself, I am God. I am. I am. What do we see in 1 John 1, 5? Again, another text that is written by the author of this gospel. John in 1 John says, speaking to the light here now, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, 
that God is white, is what? That God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So we see here, too, the connection that God, Jesus, Jesus is God. Who is light? God is light. What is Jesus saying? I am the light. And in him, there is no darkness. But first, John, John continues, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, if we walk in this light, if we walk in and by the Spirit, in response to the work of Jesus Christ, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You see this light, it saves, it redeems, and it connects. The family of God is brought together in this light. The blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so we have here 1 John helping us to understand what he is saying in John 8. As the 1689 tells us in chapter 1, later scriptures, later written texts help to illuminate earlier written texts that helps us to understand some of those more difficult passages. Not that 1 John 1 or 8, 12 is difficult, but we have 1 John helping to illuminate John 8. And let us also not miss this theme of light that is drawn out throughout, guess which prophet? Isaiah. I know back when I was preaching through 5 and 6 and 7, we had referenced the book of Isaiah numerous times, but that's because the book of Isaiah and the book of John are so intimately connected in the themes that they are discussing. And so here we have, I preached this on Christmas morning this year, John 9, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. You see, remember, just hearkening back to that Christmas morning sermon, Zebulun and Naphtali were the first tribes to fall as the kingdoms from the north broke in and took over. They were the ones in some ways, held in contempt. They were the first to fall. And it is through them, it is in the territories where those tribes were, that Jesus lived and worked most of his ministry. The land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun. And here's what the author, here's what Isaiah writes in the next verse, speaking of light. The people who walked in what? Guess. One guess. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Well, before he was incarnate. This place of darkness, where darkness literally came in and took over. In that same place, a great light has shone. And those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them light has shone. Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. This is Jesus he's referring to, the Messiah. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in a bruised reed, <clears throat> heard, in the, heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint and he will not be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and who comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. This is referring to Jesus and those who have seen the light. 
He will open the eyes that are blind. He will bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. Dungeons are typically dark, right? And he even continues, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise praise to carved idols. Behold, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you then. Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 13. For the sake of time, I won't read them, but read them later. We have themes of light and darkness. And the goodness that comes with light. The restoration that comes with light. The salvation that comes with light. Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 tells us that there will be a place, a kingdom, in which there will be no need for a sun to illuminate. Revelations 21 tells us that the kingdom that will come, the one that is to be ushered in, is going to be a kingdom, a city, a new Jerusalem, that has no need for a sun Why? Because the Son, S-O-N, God himself dwells in that city with his people. And he is the source of light. And he is the life. Malachi 4, chapter chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You see, I want you to notice the effects of great light in darkness. As the last few nights have gone by, if I don't have candles, if I don't have a lantern in the coffee table, if I don't have a flashlight to move to go downstairs to empty the sump pump, I cannot see a thing. And I guarantee a danger, an accident would happen, especially going downstairs doing the sump pump. You see, with the light, though, there is a way that I can see. And there is a way that I can understand my surroundings. And there is a way that I know how to respond in such a setting. As Frodo and Sam are in Shelob's lair, the giant spider in the cracks of doom and utter and complete darkness. They pull out the file of Gladriel that is filled with the light of a star. And it is by that light that they find safety in complete and utter darkness. And it is from this this Savior, this Jesus who is standing in the temple teaching and making claims of himself that these benefits this graciousness for lack of benefits for lack of a better word but this graciousness is given to a sinful dark humanity i am the light of the world so what is the scope of this light as he says i am the light of the world what is this world that it is referring to that jesus is referring to what is the scope my lanterns my flashlights if i point them in a direction they illuminate certain things and i still have darkness on the peripherals what is the scope of this light how many lumens on this flashlight or this lantern? How bright is it shining and what is it shining upon? Does the whole world receive grace and redemption by this light? Grace, yes, in some senses. Redemption, not everybody. Not the whole world. Common grace. This idea of of the fact that we are, as humans, sinful humanity, are just living and breathing right now is a common grace that we are all have been given, right? The breath in our lungs, the, the rain that falls and feeds the plants that we eat, the livelihoods, the homes, the jobs we have, the hobbies that we enjoy, the income we make to enjoy those hobbies, our families and friends who we enjoy doing those hobbies with, Those are all grace. It's all grace that has been given to this world. Our lives are not the worst they could possibly be. 
and that is by God's grace, his common grace. As John Bunyan, one of my favorite Reformed Baptist pastors, says, mercy and love are seen in that God gives us rain and fruitful seasons, and in that he fills our hearts with food and gladness from that bounty which he bestows upon us as men, as his creatures. There is goodness and grace that he has given to everybody, to all people. However, there is a specific grace which applies the work of redemption, the work of Jesus Christ to the elect, to those who believe. To quote Ebenezer Erskine in, John, in I think it's John Fisher's catechism, what is the special goodness of God? It is his distinguishing love to a certain number of mankind lost, manifested in their redemption through Christ. You see, there is a common grace that has been given to all of us, all of humanity, that we may live and enjoy this world as it is. But there is a special grace that is applied to those who follow Christ. As Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And what does he say in part B of this verse? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You see, there is a a, a response that has to happen to receive this light of life. There is something that must be done on our part. Spirit encouraging and urging us to do so. We must follow him so we may not walk in darkness and we may have the light of life. We read through John 1 this morning. Right? As we we read through those incredible passages of John chapter 1. Let's just read them now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was what? The light of men. This life that came from this source, this Word, this Lagos, this Jesus, the one standing in the temple, this life that comes from him is the light of men. It's our light. It's our hope. It's our salvation. It's the only thing that illuminates the dark house when the power goes out. It's the only thing that illuminates the dark society around us so we may understand it and walk through it. And as Hebrews 12 tells us, to persevere and run the race. It is this light. And this light shines in the darkness. And here's the good news. The darkness has not overcome it. The sun will come up the next day. As Aragorn fights at Helm's Deep and there is concern about what the next day brings because these are not normal orcs who are scared of the sun. They will fight during the daytime. He doesn't know what uh, the next day will bring. Aragorn says, no, there is still hope with the rising of the sun. There is still hope in the light. You see, because darkness has not and cannot and will not overcome the light. The true light, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. You see, John is specifically connecting this I am statement from John 8 to John 1, John 1 to John 8, the light of the world. I am the light of the world. This one who broke in, as we read about in Isaiah, as he prophesied was going to happen, was Jesus. And so, we must be careful, right, as the scope of this light is not, the redeeming scope of this light is not universal. We must be careful to avoid the ever popular ditches of today, of universalism, right, in which truth is everything, truth is everything, and the close buddy and partner or neo-Gnosticism, neo-paganism, whatever you want to phrase it as, that truth is in you and you make truth to be whatever you want it to be. You see, there is no light. Light is not in everything. The Bible is very clear that there is plenty of darkness and there is a source of light. 
Light is not in everything. Truth is not in everything. And we are not the determiners of the light. We are not the determiners of the truth. We don't determine it, and it is not everything. But we have one source of light, as I said last week, and as we will hear again soon. I am the way and the truth and the life. There is only one source of such redemptive light, and that is our Savior. Our hearts and our world are filled with such overwhelming darkness that it takes the miraculous work of Christ applied by his spirit to illuminate such dark places so that way we may know and see the truth of our Savior. He illuminates those dark places. To quote C.S. Lewis, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Last night I was sitting out on the front porch and I was just doing some writing about these thoughts that I've had about the light. And my front porch, uh, I was facing west and it was about 6.15. The sun was setting and I was looking directly at the sun. You can't help but notice the sun at 6.15 as it's setting. Why? Because it is blinding you. The light is so overwhelming that I pick my head up from my journal and all I see is the sun. And is that not the case with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? When the Spirit works in our hearts, we pick our eyes up and we cannot help but see the sun, S-O-N, because of his overwhelming grace drawing us to himself but by that sun as it is not blinding my eyes it allows us to do what to understand the surroundings to know what is happening around us and that's the truth of today right as we go about our lives and go about our world what is it that informs how we live and understand the world we are in It is the Son, capital S-O-N. It is Jesus. We sit there on a spring evening and it's kind of chilly outside, but you step out and you feel the warmth of the sun. You can feel the warmth even amidst the chilly temperatures. You see, even in the midst of such a dark society that has always been dark the rays of the sun are not impenetrable to it and the darkness cannot overcome it so what are the effects of embracing this light and this light If it is shining upon you, what are the effects? What is your response? I've kind of gotten ahead of myself here. In my excitement, as we've said in 12b, right? He says in 12a, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But those who follow Christ, 12c, will have the light of life. So this light of life, as this light of the sun shines upon you, what effect does it have upon you? Like a flame or a flashlight in in the pitch black, it does a few things. I think it, one, it gives you something to behold. In such a postmodern, Nietzschean world where there is very little meaning, In most things. This light that shines upon us gives us something beautiful and meaningful to behold. The confusion, the disorientation of society. We don't know what a man and a woman is. We don't know what our right and left is. In the confusion and the disorientation, this light that shines upon us gives us 
something to behold, something to orient ourselves, gives us a stability upon which we can stand. It rightly orients us. Godward. Think of those sensory deprivation tanks, right? You completely lose all sense of sight, smell, touch, hear all those five senses. You have no clue what is going on. As the light shines upon us through our darkness and redeems us, there is something to behold. Something beautiful, something meaningful. And I've already gotten ahead of myself here as well. It gives us something to help us understand the world around us. We understand why the world is the way it is. We understand what is right and what is wrong. We understand what is our left and what is our right. We see the present dangers that are ever lurking. Like walking on a Lego when the power is out because you can't see, the light gives us a sense of the danger that is around us. So it gives us something to hold, behold. It gives us something to help understand our surroundings. It gives us something to help understand ourselves. It shines a light into the dark society. It shines a light into our dark hearts. And we know by this light that shines upon us, Jesus knows what is in the heart of man. He says it. And he knows the darkness that is ever lingering and wants to creep in. And it helps us to know that we are still fallen and we are still in sin here in this world. And it helps us to know that we, though we are still in that state, we have a time that is coming in which we will be raised again with our Savior. And we have a hope as the Spirit indwells us, as Ephesians 1 tells us, fills us with this light inside of us now. So we can battle and walk and run the course, the persevere. I love that Hebrews 12 passage. The course, the race that was given to us. And so, if that light shines upon us and we choose to embrace it, we have something beautiful to behold. We understand our world. We understand who we are. We recognize and see our great Savior. But if we choose to turn the flashlight off, if we choose to turn away from the light, if we choose to ignore the light and cho choose to wander towards darkness, well, what awaits those who are not in the light, as I know for the last few days? You have no warmth. You have nothing to nourish life by. You have darkness. You have cold. You have... Danger, you have, eventually, death. Death awaits those who choose to ignore the sun. If the sun disappeared from our solar system today, life ends. And should we choose to ignore the capital S-O-N, sun, Jesus, life ends. Death awaits, not to, and it's not a, a, an ending in which we are just disappear and are gone. No, it is an ending in which life continues under the wrath of this holy God who we chose to ignore. And will it be hot? I don't know. Will it be cold? I don't know. But it will be under his wrath because we've chosen to ignore him while we were here. The sun gives life, the bread of life, rivers of living water, never hunger, never thirst. I am the light of life. He gives us safety from the cold and the darkness and the death. He gives us life and he gives us light. He gives us light and he gives us light. And so I'm going to close with, the, with reading this Ephesians passage. Ephesians 5, 6 to 14. Bear with me as I read one more passage. <clears throat> Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, you were darkness. But now, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, and I love this, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, you are merciful and gracious. You are merciful and gracious. Lord, we are thankful that into our dark places, into our dark hearts, into our dark world, you have literally broken in and come by the second person of the Trinity. And you have shined a light in a place of total darkness. And by that light you have given life to those who embrace the light. Lord, may it be true of us in this room that we embrace the light. That we cling to the light it is as, as it is our only source of life. And Lord, as Ephesians tells us, let us be little lights in this world of darkness. As we are called to take this light and to not hide this light under, under a basket, but to shine our little lights as reflections of your great light. Let us do that. Even today. To be like you like your son, reflecting him, mirroring him, shining his light into dark places. I pray these things in the name of our great Savior. Amen.